Joseph Bendick with the Novitas organization. Joseph Bendick with the, I'm sorry, what was the name of the company again? Yeah, so it's uh, Joseph Bendick, but I go by J.B. Bendick, and it's called the Novitas Organization, or TNO for short. Novitas Organization, okay. I, I just call you the social media maestro, so I um, apologize. <laughs> I didn't write down your company name. I just wrote down social media maestro because you're all over the place, especially on LinkedIn. And um, you enjoy the social media, don't you? I, I do, um, mainly because I've been a big fan before it became as popular as it is today. So I think I helped break out the energy world within LinkedIn. And so I kind of, you know, give myself a little pat on the back because I was on the forefront of that before it became as, as popular, I think, in the past year or so. Yeah, it's really taken off in the energy world without a doubt. Um, that's funny you say that. I kind of feel like I was the same way with what I'm doing. We've got... Uh, videos of uh, 2007 doing videos from our studio we had live bands and studios and uh, boy what was it you watch I think was the name live stream that's what it was live stream we were headlined on there on a few Saturday nights I used to do a show called uh, city guide Saturday Saturday night city guide Saturday night city guide that was the name of it we have live bands come by and socialites and all kinds of different thing. The the show was uh, live on a Saturday night down on the strip. It was great. It was it was a lot of fun, and that was two thousand seven. We had video and all kinds of different stuff, and I laugh because I think you know I was a little bit more ahead of myself back then than I am today. Do you feel like that? Like you're you were further ahead, you know, back when you were first starting out than you are today? Because you know you kind of have to take a step back every now and then to, you know, stay with the mainstream, if you will. Otherwise, you're too far outside the pack. Did I just make any sense? Yes, I've always taken, you know, the approach of what will happen in the future, you know, more of an idealist and innovator in that capacity. I always, you know, believe that staying in the same lane and doing it the way that's always been done has always been the downfall of companies. And someone who believes that, you know, the small startup you know, in someone's garage or in their home should be considered, you know, a possible threat. So it should always be adjusting. And so when technology came out as a platform, I adopted it very, you know, very early. Let's talk about innovation a little bit. Of course, one of the reasons we brought you on the program today, J.B. Joseph Bennett, is that the top stories, the top trends, the top issues of 2019, innovation, of course, without a doubt, is always, at least recently in the past five years, is definitely one of the top 10 stories, trends, and innovations, if not top five. What are some of the innovations that you've seen out there or that you think have created an issue? For example, flaring, of course, is a not only an issue by itself, but a lot of the technologies and innovations that go into flaring. We've seen some amazing you know strides in that but at the same time we've seen some uh some work that needs to be done too probably more on the bureaucracy side but talk to me a little bit about some innovations you've seen in the last year well you certainly appreciate you having me on your show today with within you know the flaring there's you know two sides of it number one is going to be the state regulations state and federal regulations and with that comes the environmentalists the climate activism things of that nature that are trying to force, for lack of better words, people to be more responsible with, with flaring and, and methane, CO2, carbon capture, etc. The other side of it that I 
take and I try to educate you know energy companies on is the fact if you look at the amount of, of actual waste, not so much the environmental impact, but the actual waste of what you can do with that natural gas, especially on power generation. And if you look at it from go a little more deeper, if you look at, and take the position of a landowner or a rights owner, and imagine of all of a sudden you're driving past your leasehold where you have an interest, and you see them flaring, and it's literally burning money. And so if you take and look at both both those those, those sides, the, the environmental impact and the waste impact of it, the innovation that's taken off has really it's there but it hasn't been adopted or accepted and i believe that's probably most likely because it's new and nobody in the oil field wants to you know raise their hand to be the first to adopt new technologies but when they do work they will surely stand up as i always tell everybody and claim that was their idea so it comes down to being able to educate the oil service companies and the operators on the true benefits of technology especially with within you know in gas generation you know turbine machinery and being able to, to literally save the environment and also save dollars. You mentioned mineral rights and the flaring and the waste, and, and that's something I've brought up in the past on this program for years. We've had kerfuffles happening with mineral rights as far as ownership, who owns them, this and that. Um, flooding of lands creates kerfuffles and, and arguments. The one thing that... I've mentioned before, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is, okay, subsidies, one of the dirty words in energy and one of the dirty words with capitalism and everything else, but they exist. I mean, there's probably more subsidies than non-subsidies in the world today. I mean, I, I, I guarantee you, if you took a look at the top, I don't know, 200 companies, 500 companies in the United States, I bet they get some sort of tax breaks or subsidies. And a lot of people nowadays put it right into their balance sheet and profit and loss in terms of if without them, their companies don't work. So when you look at subsidies and what the solar and wind industry has gotten in the last 40 years, 50 years, and really how much they've ramped up in the last 20 years, if we took a look at those subsidies just in solar and wind and said, okay, you haven't reached your milestones. So instead of giving you more money, to not reach milestones. What if we took half of that and gave it to natural gas? Because we have all this flaring going on and nobody likes the flaring. And now the natural gas subsidy there would go to these crazy innovators who are away from their families, sleeping on well sites, checking gauges and making liquefied natural gas, all these different things. But the other part of it that I really enjoy is what you mentioned, the mineral rights. A lot of times, in most cases, from my understanding, the mineral owners are not getting paid on the flared gas. I think they might in some counties, but for the most part, they're not. If it was subsidized, then all of a sudden you'd almost be given a local economic impact to a lot of these mineral owners. And, and then the local cafes would get some money, et cetera, and the hardware hanks of the world, if you will. So I don't know. Uh, I just kind of really loaded up a big question there for you, but it's more of a discussion, you know, of, of the shifting of some renewable to natural gas. Because keep in mind, natural gas only has one carbon molecule. It's very clean energy. And um, the mineral owners and everything else, just your thoughts on on the mineral rights and flaring, not receiving their their subsidies if it's flared and, the, and then the um, subsidies in terms of shifting it from renewables if you followed my 
my, my rambles there at all. <laughs> no, I, 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 start, I certainly did. Yeah, you know, what's going to be an interesting topic coming here, uh, you know, with the presidential elections heading into, uh, you know, this upcoming new decade, 2020, and the media hasn't really picked up on it yet, but I believe they will, is the renewing of the tax credits on the federal level for solar energy. There is a substantial percentage of money that is given as a tax credit if you implement solar panels uh, commercially and residentially. And that, you know, underwriting by the government has completely blown up the solar, you know, solar panel industry. I'll just keep it as that. And in about two years, I believe it's two years, um, it, it, unless it's renewed by Congress, it's going to expire. And I'm curious to see exactly if it's going to be sustainable, pun intended, where these companies can survive without that government subsidy that encourages investors because they know that they basically have a guaranteed, you know, capital return because they're going to get money from the government for implementing it. And I would be very interested to see if that's going to be renewed or if it's going to be a hot topic during the presidential election because it's going to put Trump against a crucial issue as far as subsidies, energy, natural gas, solar. And so I, on the subsidy side, I would really focus in and, and, and look at look at that and look at how that's impacted and possibly even you know inflated the demand side of solar because it is underwritten by the federal government to spin this back onto the natural gas side and how you can you know lack of better word subsidize the natural gas industry i believe not so much subsidies as the ability on the power generation side where you can actually microgrid especially here in the permian where people can be self-contained power generation on their, on their facilities on their efrac eventually on the e-drill and not actually have to run out a lot of power lines from Encore and pay an electric bill. They could be self-contained, powering themselves. And then eventually, especially here in Texas, if they build these microgrids off of natural gas, any excess power could then be sold back into the ERCOT system. And so I think there could be a very, a very great opportunity on power generation where you could actually incentivize power-producing companies to use natural gas generated power. Another topic that was brought up was pipelines as critical infrastructure, whether it's natural gas or crude oil pipelines. Uh, it is critical infrastructure according to many government agencies and laws and things like that, but they don't enforce it. They don't necessarily treat it as such. Protests are increasing. Um, protesters are, it's an occupation now. It's no longer a lifestyle, uh, passion. It's just a, um, career passion, I guess, or a job passion because majority of the protesters get paid these days, at least the ones in leadership positions do. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your thoughts about pipelines, pipelines as critical infrastructure. Just had the Keystone pipeline spill the other day. Uh, so obviously that's going to be some major ammunition for environmentalists and it's a little bit of a PR setback for the uh, oil and gas industry. Uh, pipelines, how, how do you see pipelines in the past year and in 2020? One of the most, I think, sometimes unrecognized, unappreciated individual in the oil and gas industry are pipeliners. The amount of sacrifice that they make going out and laying piping throughout the continental United States is is, is amazing. And I think the media in a narrative that they control when you have one spill out of the 
you know, tens of thousands of pipelets in the, in, in the ground, the, mi- the, the miles upon miles of it. It's a very small fraction of, of the whole. And they focus in on that. And I think it's an undue um, – it, it, it gets me upset because they focus in on that one little small incident and don't look at the whole picture of all of the, the greatness that pipeliners and, and infrastructure and streamers provide to, to our country and, and, to, and to the you know, oil and gas service companies getting the product to market. Um, heading into 2020, especially here in the Permian, I believe depending upon – Capital budgets that are going to be restarting to reset end of this year into the you know first quarter you know January February of next year is going to determine the the amount of money that some of these operators have to do new drills and be able to keep production steady or slightly increased. The amount of backlog on the pipeline side is plentiful, and so those projects that have been you know fit out you know final investment decision are going to be going into you know being processed out. I think if we don't see an uptick in some production that possibly some of these projects on the, on the pipeline side will be temporarily put on hold or scaled back because of the amount of of line that's finally going to be coming online. Um, you know, the pipeline always tries to stay ahead of the demand. It, it, it's just it's so hard to pinpoint because any step back on the capex on an operator side to you know pull back on production is ultimately going to affect the amount of product that's moving the pipelines. It's just so it's it's. I think going into 2020, you probably will see a small pullback on the infrastructure side or more hesitation because the, there's not a clarity in the market as to what production is going to be heading into you know the second quarter uh, midpoint of 2020 with all of the current um, supply that's in the market and also the the companies in pulling back you know 20 30 percent of their capex uh, heading into 2020. Those headwinds I think are going to put a little bit downward pressure on the midstream companies. One of the comments that William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group, said earlier in the year, which I think is a very, uh, it's it's a reality. I think it was here last year, but I think it's uh, the reality uh, when it comes to, you know, pipelines being delayed and refineries. A lot of it has to do with the well orchestration of the litigation that a lot of the um, activists and opponents have to pipelines and et cetera. I think the the pullback, I think part of it's going to be litigation. Have you noticed an uptick in, in people talking about how much time they're spending in court and attorney's fees and, geez, we might as well bring a guy on full-time as legal counsel in our small little 30-person organization because the numbers would be better. Are you hearing much on the legal side? I mean, like I said, I've heard a few people actually refer to it as the new normal, just – you, you have to do a year of litigation before you can break a shovel now. It's interesting that you say that just because recently in the media has picked up, uh, I believe it's, you know, kind, I think it's a Kinder Morgan pipeline, I, I, I believe, um, that's running through the, the Austin area. And it caused a lot of uproar. Um, and so now it's pushed back, I believe, a year now uh, because of, you know, lawsuits being filed, litigation. And I'm sure a lot of these companies are, are, you know, are used to, you know, to fighting that. And thankfully, over the past couple of years, the um, regulatory bodies, especially on, on the federal level, FERC, have been um, more transparent, open to expedite permits and, and legalities compared to previous, you know, previous um, administrations. So that has helped tremendously. But I think going back to the, you know, this pipeline as an example, going through Austin, 
I sit back and I, I kind of, you know, put my head against the wall uh, because I wonder who on the right of way side or on the design side decided to run a pipeline through one of the most hot, you know, more hostile areas to oil and gas being that of the, you know, the Austin area. And I think, you know, the, the, the lawsuit part of it is, is a tactic to stall through litigation and, and starvation financially. But I think it goes down to we as a community have to communicate better to the public on exactly what goes on in the pipeline process and on the midstream and on the downstream side of it. Because I, I truly believe it's such – we in the oil and gas industry know each other. It's, it's a big brotherhood, a big sisterhood of – of people, and sometimes we become become bubble like, where we we just pile around each other, and we really don't do a good job communicating to the public exactly the, what we what we do in the industry, the regulations that are already in 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 place, the amount of legalities that have to be done, and how after pipeline is laid, the community the community effects of that pipeline and the restoration and remediation of the area is tremendous. But we allow the narrative to be controlled by a couple of the, you know, like you said, protesters. Media picks it up, and it paints a, a negative picture when all of the legalities in, in the world that you can do from a lawsuit perspective can be fought in the court of public opinion. And I think we as an industry as a whole have to do a better role of educating the public, and when we start doing that, I believe a lot of those matters on the litigation side – will actually decrease. So let me ask you this. How do we get past the platitudes? Because I've, I've heard this now for a year that we need to do a better job of communicating. Actually, we started hearing this last year too. And I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, this summer I went on a few speaking circuits and I wasn't a very popular guy. I was in some circles, but I wasn't in other circles because I just, I did kind of a gut check and I just said, let's look at the last 10 years. We've made more money and spent more money as an industry than any other 10-year period in history. That's $100 oil. So there's very few can argue against that. And look what's happened. We're, we've pretty much gotten a backward ban in New York and in Colorado to where the governors are actually openly declaring a war on oil and gas. Back in the summer when I was talking about this, we had two presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, that were openly talking about banning fossil fuels. And I said, I've never heard of this. A, a candidate coming out and saying they're going to ban an industry? I've never even heard of anybody saying they want to ban the cigarette industry. Regulate it more, but not ban it. So when I started hearing this and I said, when I look around at these conferences, I see the same people talking to the same people, spending the same money, using the same resources with the same people. So I don't know why we expect to have a different result. And we got the new Green Deal now trying to ban our industry in 10 years. I don't know about you guys, but I'd like to come back to this conference in 10 years. And I want to drive. And you could like kind of hear a pin drop a little bit because it was, it, for me, it was a big moment. I mean, I just, I felt like if this conversation doesn't happen, Pretty soon it won't matter because the oil and gas seems to be falling behind more and more every year. And for just those reasons I named out to you, 
that, you know, we've got several other states now trying to do back. Oh, Wyoming did a ban in their BLM land. So um, I don't know if you want to tackle that and comment on it or not. To me, it was just it was a very in your face way to say we've got to make some changes and start doing some things differently. And that's why we went out and sponsored Johnny Green, the environmentalist, because he's going out to high schools and, and junior highs and grade schools and rock concerts and parades and engaging with kids and parents in Austin and then Fargo and then um, Boulder, you know, all the all the uh, uh, places that kind of get known as the blue anti-fossil fuel areas going right in there. Will it work? No idea. But at least it's trying something different and engaging with people that are not, you know, part of the same realm that, that I've seen for the past 10 years. So I'm not, again, not trying to be altruistic, not trying to be controversial, just trying to have a conversation about some realities of the industry. Uh, just your, your thoughts on that. And you can tell me to take a flying leap if you want, but just your thoughts. No, I, I'm with you on, on what you have, have stated on that. And you bring up a really good point. You know, the, the true, what's really going on when you really take a step back, and I don't want to go, you know, super political with you know, political terms, but it really is indoctrination that's going on within the educational system. Because we, we haven't done a, a good enough job being able to push back the narrative and to push back the educational system where people are going in even in, in elementary schools. You know, I, I saw a video um, of someone had posted where there was a cartoon and, the, and their kid was watching it and, the, and they literally were basically came out and turned a rig into a solar wind farm or something. And this individual was absolutely shocked that this is like on a, I think it was one of the major networks. Um, it was on a kid's show and him, he was, he was floored on it, but that's what's going on right now. You know, all throughout, they're just told over and over again that any type of fossil fuel is, is evil you know, clean energy, wind and solar are the only way to go. And there's no one to, to challenge or push back on it. And now that generation, the last decade, are now in decision-making roles. They're coming out of college. They're going into the workforce. And so it's very hard when someone has been indoctrinated a certain way to even push back, even to have a, a, a conversation where you, can, you know, where you can talk professionally. It's so emotionally involved. It's, it, that's a really tough word to say, indoctrination, because most people will just stop listening to you right there. That's what I found. You can give them verified data. Dan Haley, uh, he's a Colorado oil and gas uh, association uh, executive. I'm not a president. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mr. Dan Haley or not, but he spoke on a panel that I spoke on this summer. And he brought that up about how in Colorado, I believe now I'm Dan Haley, if you're listening and I'm wrong, please correct me. But from my memory, sitting on that panel, he said that the Colorado school system didn't even have oil and gas or fossil fuels as an, as an option for the kids to choose about how to how to improve energy or some sort of uh, multiple choice that had to do with energy and wind was on there and solar was on there and fossil fuels wasn't even on there and i thought wow you got like 90 percent of the planet has to rely on or at least america has to rely on coal and fossil fuels you know for for energy and and they just flat out take it out that tells me that they're getting the next generation 
ready for a life without it. That's what it told me right there in the moment. And that was an actual example of the word indoctrination being used in re real time. So I, 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 the only reason I, I bring that up is because I know how difficult it is to have a conversation with somebody and you start using actual words that are in its Webster's definition, its form, like indoctrination, because you are. You're, I, I believe that you're using it in its proper definition and its proper use in a sentence. But I think most people will look at you as you're kind of a, a, a lobbyist for the oil and gas industry if you're doing it. Like, do you know what I mean by that? Or when you, I don't know. Maybe I'm. Yeah. What, what you, you see? You see what happens is people. You've got to be able to think objectively and, and remove the emotions out of it. Even myself, where I have. I, I study up and I read a lot, and you know my degree. Take a step back; is, is in political science, and so I'm used to looking at things objectively, looking at things methodically, even if I disagree with them. Because the best way you you can take your your what you believe is right is to understand where the other person's coming from, and basically have them self realize that their point is wrong. I mean, that's how you have a debate. You know, that's how you communicate. Today, the emotions that are involved with it. It's like a Chinese wall. You know, I've been told this for my whole life. It is that there is no if, ands, buts, or buts about it. And when it gets to be like that and it gets to be emotional, then you then you don't have dialogue, then you don't have communications, and then you have anger, and then you, and I hate to say this, after that, then you have violence. And you see that now pinning the oil and gas industry against that of, you know, the sustainability, the, the climate activism. And what happens, what gets distorted on both sides are, are the facts. And when people make decisions based upon emotion rather than actual logic and facts, that decision might feel good and sound right and, and believe it's right at the moment. But the long-term effects down the road, that's where it really starts to, to affect. For example, look at California. I'm going to spin this over to California. You know, $4 for, for gasoline, mostly because of state taxes. But the community there thinks it's the big oil companies. When in reality, it's the state taxing the crap out of gasoline – that people actually think oil and gas companies are are the rich people, and and, and that's the price that they set. Um, look at the the power industry right now with with winds. Um, you know, I've read an interesting article where you know a couple of those million people had to lose power in California because of high winds, and they said mainly it was because of you know clearing around wires, and that can cause brush fires and, and cause you know like the, the big wildfire. Well, I've heard multiple different sources that the main reason is is because when you have excess winds, I believe above 55 miles an hour, I believe that's what the number is, wind turbines can't operate. And they're so heavily dependent upon wind turbines that they couldn't supply the power. And so they're saying people always prevent wildfires when indeed it's because they can't have the, the on-demand generation of power. And they want to take that model from California and they want to apply it to the United States. Could you imagine – the anarchy, and I use that word because if you lose power, imagine the power going down for across the country, you know, for a couple hours every single day. Bad things happen, and but no one's talking about that. That's what really gets me upset is because we're not we're so emotional on both sides that we're not looking at it from from a humanity's perspective and all the benefits that abundant and free and affordable energy provide on a daily basis that we just take for granted, and um, and and, and that I think. Um, is, is the problem. We have to do a better job in our industry 
on partnering up and getting back into the schools, getting back into the communities, challenging people on the facts, but not allowing their emotions and their blowback against us to cause us to get guarded and get emotional and then bicker and bicker because we miss the truth on both sides when we do that. I truly believe, and I don't say this lightly because I, I, the reason that we're doing a little bit more of the hard edge with the crude life now is because uh, it's time to step up. 2020 will be the most important year for the energy industry and oil and gas specifically, at least in my lifetime, without a doubt. I mean, you've got an increasing number of presidential candidates actually saying we'll ban the industry. That, that to me, is beyond fringe science. That, to me, is beyond a crazy, a crazy, crazy, crazy statement. And the fact that any media would allow that statement to be made without any follow-ups. Oh, what's your plan then? Without any follow-ups is beyond reckless from the media standpoint. And it just shows you where we're at in today's world. Uh, I believe 2020 is going to be the most important year for oil and gas. Because when I was at the Wildcatters golf event this summer in Casper, Wyoming, fantastic event and i'm not saying this to bash the employees there but i was in the lounge um, i didn't golf i was doing more interviewing and uh, meetings and things like that and so people would come in have lunch and they'd go and have a few drinks then they'd go and do their holes and they'd go play the golf and you know the next round uh, uh the gun flags off this and that well they had the whole country club rented for the weekend and there was probably you know four or five uh, 20 to 5 to 35 year olds working behind the staff, uh, working as staff members, this and that. And I'd watch them make several hundred dollars over lunch, each one of them. And then when there was nobody in there but me, you know, they'd talk amongst themselves and they would bash oil and gas. They would make fun of oil and gas. Not in a way that was mean, not in a way that was malicious, just in a way that, you know, college kids do. Just, you know, just like, just like uh, Ross and Rachel and Joey sitting around drinking coffee at Central Perk on Friends. It, it, it wasn't, you know, anything. It was just the way the narrative was going, was the way the society was going. And I would just look at them and think, I just watched you make $300 from a bunch of oil and gas people having fun. And you were smiling and loving life right to their face. And, you know, and now you're bashing them. But you don't even know you're bashing them. That's the part that gets me is they don't even really know they're doing that. And that's really hard for people to understand unless you can actually see it in the moment. That's what I think the oil and gas industry is up against. And that's why I'm really worried. And that's why I do believe that this is the most important year ever for the energy industry. You can't have this level of acceptance of people saying, let's get rid of an industry that powers 90% of our life. <laughs> just, I mean, it's just, it's, I, I don't even know what to tell you, man. Because to me, it is truly bizarre. But yet, if I say anything, I'm considered the whack job. So I just kind of try to nudge it along and, and point it out and do some different things. But anyway, your thoughts on that. You know, I kind of, again, I just handed you a loaded hand grenade here. It's more of a conversation today rather than an interview. Have you noticed that? Yes, and, and I like it because it, it flows better than being, you know, being you know, staged. And I, and I think, you know, this is a conversation that, we you know we need to have and, and hopefully through your channels it gets of course you know uh, out to 
oil and gas individuals, but hopefully also it gets out to someone who, who's curious and who's trying to be objective and, and doing research and comes across this conversation and gets them to, you know, to think a little bit, be like, yeah, that's a, that's a good point, you know, that, that, you know, JB had brought up and, and that I, I will, I would truly, you know, love to, to see, to see that happen. So by all means, I absolutely, I love a good conversation. Um, but going back to your, to your question on, on that, uh, <laughs> Sometimes, you know, and I've used this too, where I played real dumb, you know, in conversation with people, just because um, I can see that, you know, their 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 way of life or how you know what they're representing um, uh, in public, you know, just how someone is acting in public. I kind of can assume, okay, this person is probably you know driving a Tesla, or they are driving a Tesla, or they're you know um, wearing a shirt called band fracking, and, and I'll approach that, but I won't go up and. Let them know I'm in the oil and gas industry. I actually go up as a concerned citizen. I, I play dumb, and sometimes just by allowing them to vent and to tell their concerns, and then reply back with a question and 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 learning to all of a sudden to get, to get them thinking about it. Well, why do you believe that? Well, what if if this happens? And I've been able to have good conversations with individuals by not going up and saying, okay, ban fracking, you know what you're talking about, you know, it powers the world, you know, given all these these facts. Well, that puts a wall up and they go defensive and, and you're not having conversation. A lot of the time when you just take time to listen to them, let them literally, you know, vent and then reason back with them saying, well, you said this, but if this happens, then therefore this doesn't happen. And sometimes a light bulb goes off. Um, you know, one of the greatest things that, that I that I use that really gets a lot of people, uh, um, you know, worked up sometimes is there'll be environmentalists and people against fracking and against oil and gas and everything under the sun. But everything about them, from the water bottle in their hand to their, the rubber on their shoes to the phone in their hands, is all provided in some way, shape, or form by the, the, the petro business, petrochemicals. And when you let them know that, it, they, they kind of go, wow. So I literally would have to be almost naked if I completely ban oil and gas. And when they, when they realize that, because they just don't know, then they, it kind of gets a light bulb off and they have, hopefully have more conversation with it. But we have to have those conversations. We have to get out. You know, there's only about a million to maybe a two million of us somewhat in shape or form in the oil and gas industry. Across multitudes more that are just – blatantly against oil and gas so we have the numbers against us but if we start having these smaller conversations and we start getting people to to open up and look at it objectively we we can we can go into 2020 strong but we have we in the oil and gas industry we have to take the lead on this we have to we have to you know tell the stories and we have to communicate that the benefits of it um and i think the burden the burden is certainly on us and i hope going into 2020 that we um, we as a community come together outside of our, our, our bubble and start engaging um, these individuals, but do it in a way that does not cause them to be defensive, that removes the emotion portion of it and helps them to self-realize that we're not the enemy and that our way of life and the way this country is and why it's so great and why we have the freedoms and the abilities we do is because of free and abundant energy. I mean, there's 4 billion people in the world today that literally don't have running water or power. I used that stat one time to someone, and they had no idea there were 4 billion people. They thought everybody had food and water. They were clueless. And so if, if we're able to communicate that I, I you know, in, in that methodology, I think we can really change not only the perspective here in the United States, but also across the world and bring people, massive amounts of people out of poverty. It's interesting you brought that up about, um, well, I, the poverty I'm going to 
bring to in just a second here, but was being able to connect effectively, communicate effectively, because to me, that's the problem. That That is a major, major problem. And I do think energy companies need to have a little bit of a, a of a extra session in their in their meetings this year about public relations and communications and everything. And here's here's my argument for it. And it's tough for me because I work in that industry. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm in the communication industry, so it's very easy for somebody like me to say I'm working for my sales department at this point because I'm given, you know, uh, think of us. No, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing here is I'm saying We've had some of the top CEOs in the industry on this program, especially in the early days, back when, you know, they were accessible. Now they're like rare albino white elks. You can't find them hardly. <laughs> Five years ago during $100 oil, man, they were all over the place. But uh, they, they all, by all, I'm, you know, Harold Hamm, Tommy News, uh, James Volker, uh, John Gibson, uh, just to name a few, not to name drop, just to actually legitimately name a few. They all said the word paradigm shift. And they, they, they're not ones to exaggerate. They had examples behind the paradigm shift of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, how it's changed everything. It's changed everything from uh, the innovation side. It's changed the natural gas side of things. It's changed uh, how uh, the sensors and remote monitoring has working. We have remote fracking now. You've got um, uh, big data, which has completely revolutionized human resources. You've got big data that's completely revolutionized uh, the safety areas and regulations. So why wouldn't your communications and your public relations and your marketing go through a paradigm shift too? So I do think that is the one part that the energy companies and the service companies need to look at and say, how much have we done the same for the last 10 years? And if we're doing the same thing, is it working? Because it might be working. Again, I'm not asking you to change it. I'm just saying if it's not working or it's not communicating effectively, maybe it's time to look at something else. One guy in Pennsylvania, you mentioned, mentioned you're from Pennsylvania. He went out and bought a minor league baseball team and called it the junior frackers. Now, I wouldn't do that, but at least it's something different. Now you've got people associating the word fracking with something positive because going to a baseball game is fun. So now at least you've got an association in a positive way. Again, it's not my cup of tea, but I, God bless them for trying something different. Again, we, we're sponsoring a guy who's the greatest environmentalist on, on, on earth to go out and engage with kids in a pro wrestling, cartoon, comical, uh, um, you know, kind of a, a hipster, cool kind of way. Is it going to work? No idea. But at least it's a paradigm shift how we're doing things. What are your thoughts on that, what I just said, as far as, you know, when you look at a marketing, a public relations, an interaction and an engagement that paradigm shift example I just brought up. You bring up a, a good point because one of the things that's really got underneath my, you know, my skin is sometimes I've, I've, I've allowed it and you can, you know, see through my socials and things is when, when a company, um, especially, um, you know, over in Europe called climate action 100, where they are going in and they're cutting off, Funding basically, you know, through investors, you know, going into the into the four hundred one k's of uh, you know fund managers, hedge funds, etc. All the people that have the capital, and, and basically saying what you're doing is, you know, lack of better words, you know, it's evil, it's killing the earth, 
and they've all rounded around to basically take out the liquidity in, in, in their capital. And that climate action, that's why you see companies like Total and you see companies like Shell coming out saying, you know, basically what we've done for the last hundred years, we're going in opposite complete direction. What we've done is wrong, um, you know, admit liability and fault. Um, and now it's, 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 it's become, you know, contagion and now it's coming across here in the United States and you're starting to see it now through the, the big operators and small, smaller operators here in, in the United States. And I sit back and I think to myself, these companies are basically saying, you know, in, in, in an indirect way, saying what they're doing is wrong, you know, and it, it, it just it just gets me because what company goes out there and tries to sell something or do something, but then comes out and says, oh, you know, we're, we're at fault or, we're, you know, we're killing the earth or we're polluters um, because of, 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 the, of the fear of, of losing the liquidity and things of that nature. And at the root of it, it goes back and I say, man, if they just had – a strong communications department, a strong PR department to help push back on that narrative, it would it would be it would be a game changer. But they're allowing that narrative, you know, that uh, to, to to be controlled by these other, you know, climate action one hundred, other, you know, whatever word you want to put, climate activists, um, fractivists, things of that nature, um, because they they don't have the ability to push back and push back professionally. And I think that's mainly because they have, and I, I, I always say this now too, I say it's not your daddy's oil field. And I think the good old boys club, you know, it's been around, we've done it this way for 30 years. This is how it's done. Oh, we've always, you know, had people, you know, protesters, you know, they're going to go away. They're, they're going to, you know, we're going to be okay. Well, it's a whole different ballgame with social media today. You know, you don't get your news from the newspaper or the younger generations don't read the news from the newspaper anymore. It's something that goes viral. It's something that's on YouTube. It's something that's on LinkedIn and Instagram. And then people collectively want to be so um, involved in, in that collective because they don't want to, you know, they say FOMO, fear of missing out that sometimes they join the bandwagon. They have no idea what, 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 what bandwagon they're on or where it's going. They just want to be included. And there's nothing there to push back and, and to correct and to help, the the truth and i think you know pr departments have to come together even collectively to say we need to to have a coalition for lack of better words to unite and to push back against when when someone comes out and says you know that you're going to ban fracking there should be a huge you know coalition out there that would fight back on that and you know my political sense is it goes back to um, why isn't there a, a true pro-energy, pro, lack of better words, pro-frack pack that would actually buy airtime across media channels and push back against Elizabeth Warren and people that are going to come out and just ban frack? But I, th I think there already are. But um, again, I go back to, and this is not sour grapes or me trying to to get pick a fight, but those exist. But it's generally it's the same resources with the same people giving you the same results. And in fact, um, I wanted to bring this up because I'm looking at the clock. we got about five minutes left here, but I, I wanted to bring this up. I brought my son to the Williston Basin Petroleum Council, um, or the Williston Basin uh, Petroleum Conference. It's a big one. And um, every, every year they have it in Canada and then they have it in the Bakken. They kind of go back and forth. And, um, I think this was the year that maybe Sean Hannity was there. And I brought my son, and he um, 
he's 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 done professional interviews and so he kind of he, he knows the media he's been doing it since he was eight years old he was i think 12 at the time interviewed harold ham at this thing he interviewed um who else rick ross from whiting he got better interviews than i did actually um but at this at this thing there was a bike there that had no petroleum products and it was basically like a metal frame you know, I get it. Okay, trying to connect with the kids on the bike level, this and that. And it's a good attempt. But the person that was uh, doing it, it was, it was almost like they were lecturing the kid. And I see that a lot in our industry to when we engage with people, it's almost like we're lecturing them because it is tough. It, I, I imagine farmers went through the same thing. That when you know when, when you supply so much of something and and the general public becomes ungrateful, you kind of get a little little upset. And so as I watched this guy, and he again he you know he probably should have been coached a little bit different or maybe had a different presentation. But the culture it certainly didn't didn't stand out except for the kid who's not part of that culture. Because he's not part of the day-to-day, so he doesn't understand the idiosyncrasies of the industry, and he doesn't understand the jokes and all these other things. So it came across as, you know, some old dude trying to lecture him on why oil and gas rocks. So it turned him off even more. And I thought to myself, boy, that's how good old boy we get as an industry. Even trying to do the right thing, we can still turn people off. And that's when I started, again, it's a tough thing because... If you speak up, first of all, if you speak up like I am right now, I already know there's people that, are, that have held it against me, and it's cost me financially just speaking up. Secondly, you know, if you mention anything, well, that guy might be really well-liked. So now you got people sticking up for that guy instead of maybe saying we should, you know, coach him differently or figure out a new message because the next guy had the same message and it was coming across as a lecture. You know what I mean? So it was just, anyway, it, my point is, is that for, if you try to speak up in the industry, you might get some repercussions. And, and then if you try to speak engagingly, we have to be aware that we can come across as almost, you know, got to remember energy is one of the kings of the economy. So you, you have a big responsibility just do that alone. And I think we forget that sometimes too. Anyway, I, I, I it was more of a story and I kind of wanted to get your reaction on, on my, my um, real life anecdote story in terms of uh, paradigm shift with public relations in the industry. Well, I appreciate you, you, you sharing that with me. And you're and you're right because one of the other things that I when I all of our conversation we've we've had today and in different topics, if you really boil it down to to one word, it comes down to humanity and how how we treat each other in the you know in the industry or on the the clean energy industry whatever side of the spectrum that that you're on. If we do not have civil conversation and how how we communicate, how we treat each other, and how how we tell our stories, then nothing nothing will change, and everything will be polarized on 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 both sides, and you won't progress together. And I think, you know, on the humanity side, like the case with like with your son, is that we we have to you know, push back and hold each other accountable and, and call each other out when we when we see some things wrong. For example. Um, Let's say you come out and you, you know, you had said something, and like you said, you got some blowback or or, or pushback. 
well, what what if what if you're right? Who come who comes to your side and and, and backs you, backs you up, or who holds each other accountable and says, "Man, you know your approach on that topic was a bit harsh. You may have wanted you to choose better words." That self accountability and accountability to each other is is crucial. And if we if we all just take a step back and breathe, and remember that it's it's about humanity, I th- I think we can really. Um, you know, move forward and, pro- and progress, progress together. But we have to, we have to get out of this, this bubble of, you know, this is the way we've done it for 30 years. This is, you know, as I say, it's not your daddy's oil field and we're losing the time spec, you know, the, the time right now, because there's an entire generation, literally an entire generation that knows nothing about what the oil and gas industry does, has done and will do for humanity. And if we're able to address that and, and take a step forward together and, and help push back professionally I, I think our industry can be great going into 2020. It's a new decade, but if we don't start doing it in the next couple of years, we're going to lose that generation for good. And I'd hate to see what the oil and gas industry is going to look like at the end of this upcoming decade. I, you know, if we don't if we don't change course here pretty quickly, I think it's going to it's not going to look very positive. Wrapping up here, I, I just wanted to mention. I'm so glad you brought up the poverty part of it and people I, I think it's poverty and, and people without water and, and everything like that because these are real issues happening today and one of my contentions for 2020 as far as my speaking circuit is that I'm going to go out and tell college kids that my contention is is that one of the main drivers behind the new green deal is now I'm, I'm I got to massage this a little bit because I'm, I'm this is going to be pretty blunt, but we've got billions of people without power. We've got billions of people without water. We've got billions of people that are living in poverty, and yet we want to commit trillions of dollars to the future of a bunch of unknown. We have major problems right now on this planet that we need to solve, but what the public conversation across the globe is continually and increasingly going to be is, well, we better give up all of our rights and hand over our checkbook for the problem to solve 100 years from now. That is amazing to me, that that amount of anxiety, that that amount of fear, and that amount of speculation without any science. Now, sure, you've got consensus science, but the difference between consensus science and regular sciences is that if you put a thousand scientists into a room and you ask them and you say, does the earth revolve around the sun? A thousand of those scientists will say, yes, it does. That's science. But when you put a thousand scientists in a room and only half of them agree with it, that's consensus science. So when you don't even have actual science, you have consensus, consensus science which is politically motivated and special interest driven. You can go back history and history. Like I said, nobody argues that the, the moon revolves around the earth. Everybody knows that's just science. But you still got arguments out on what the climate's going to be next week, let alone 100 years from now. So my contention is, is that there, my conspiracy theory is, and oh, I love a good conspiracy theory, because what the heck, we might as well go that far. I just truly believe that it's a smokescreen to not focus on the problems that we have on today's world. We've got people without water, we've got people without electricity, and we've got people um, that are poor, really, really poor. And we've got so many means to take care of that, but yet we've got to give up our rights and our pocketbook for a problem 
of a solution 100 years from now. Anyway, um, your, your thought on that. You brought up the poverty, and I wanted to make sure I got that in there. I, like I said, I'm still massaging it a little bit for when I bring it out to the public, but it, that's, the, that's the idea behind it is kind of the whatever happened to the problems we have to know today to solve today. Yeah, you know, go, going off of, off of that with poverty, what a great opportunity right now that the oil and gas industry has on, on, on two portions of it. Number one, power generation, being able to, especially here in the Permian, taking all that flaring, all that well gas, um, and then being able to convert it into electricity through, through gas turbines. You know, getting those turbines, you know, more power, smaller, smaller size, less cost, et cetera. And that will come, come with, with time. So you can take those units and literally power up very remote villages is, is, is one way. But here, here's, the, here's the other portion of it, too. And we have a long way to go on the oil and gas industry right now on recycling produced water in, in water, in water treatment. You know, the amount of water that's used, in, you know, in, in, in fracks and then refracts, et cetera. I won't get into the details on that. It's another story for another day. Um, and most of the time they drill new, new, new wells for fresh water because it's more economical than recycling right now from, from, from a cents per barrel perspective. But imagine if the oil and gas industry is able to come up with a way to truly purify water and desalinate it at, at, a, at an affordable rate and make those units smaller and portable. We can go to every remote village and every poor you know, country, all the four billion people that, that are dying because of lack of drinking water or sanitation or, or power and be able to say oil and gas, you know, industry is able to provide this device to purify your water and at no cost to you. The impact across the world that would make, and that's not solar, that's not clean energy, it's actually delivering on humanity. Going back, delivering on humanity, and from the oil and gas industry. And I bring this up all the time to different recycling companies that are having new technologies and new solutions. And, and I poke, I poke the barrel of it, and I say, well, okay, this is great. It goes down to Bryn Water. But when can we get it down to the point that it can be agricultural grade, or when it can be actual, uh, you know, just you know, non-potable, but actually drinkable? And then we could take that technology and deploy it across the world. Imagine the impact that would make from the oil and gas industry, solving a problem for oil and gas industry that is applicable to all of humanity across the world, and bringing four billion people out of out of poverty. What a great story, and what a great pushback that would be to all of the environmentalists. Um, and and and. That really inspires me, and that's why I love the oil and gas industry because the innovation and what we can do for humanity is there. We just have to get off of our old old days in the way that Daddy did it, you know, Daddy's oil field, and embrace the technology, embrace our communication, embrace how we address the public, and re-educate everyone. And we can we can change humanity. I really truly believe that. Make sure you give your company a plug. What your services are. Uh, how people can get in touch with you, all that good stuff. Appreciate you coming on the program today to share your mind and your experience and everything else like that. So the least we can do is let people know how you make a living out there. Thank you uh, so much for having me. Uh, my name is Joseph Bendick. I go by J.B. Bendick. My company is called the Novitas Organization, or TNO for short. And we're retained strategists in the oil and gas industry, bringing new technology and solutions to the marketplace.